You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back to Dogman.com Radio. I'm Scott Eklund, uh, your host today, and I'm lucky enough to have the pleasure of having Brandon Huffman, who used to only live about 15 minutes away from me, but now lives about an hour hour away from me, uh, from uh, 247, and he is here to talk all things recruiting in uh, the world of the Washington Huskies and the Pac-12. Brandon, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. Now that I know that you're an hour away rather than 15 minutes, I'm doing better, Scott. Hey, it was better for you that I was paying your, your daughter uh, money. <laughs> I was giving her uh, money for gas. You know, I'm, come on. I'm only serious. I'm only, I mean, I'm only joking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. We'll we'll uh, dispense with the, the chit-chat and get right into it. Brandon, lots of stuff going on, even, you know, with this vote that – they're getting ready to take here. We're, we're recording this on Thursday before the vote happens. You guys are hearing this Friday morning. So obviously the vote will have taken place by the time you actually hear this. But lots of stuff going on, Brandon, even with the dead period uh, being extended. I think it was extended till January 1st, correct? January 1st, although I've heard as late as January 21st is more like a realistic number. Okay. Um, essentially, the NCAA is just buying themselves time. Yeah, I mean, they're just kicking it down the road. I mean, they've done this all year. I mean, they, they first extended the dead period through May, I think, till like early June. And then they extended it from June until early this, you know, in September. And then they kicked it from September all the way into into um, into January now. So it could just keep keep on going. We don't know. But Still a lot going on, even though Washington's only down to probably two guys left on their board right now. We'll get into that here in a little bit for the 2021 class. But, Brandon, I think some of the things that uh, a lot of people are wondering about is is just the land, the overall landscape of recruiting in the Pac-12. Oregon is is having a really good recruiting cycle, even though they can't host recruits and everything like that. They're number three in the country, I believe, right now overall in in recruiting and and Brandon just talk about the overall um Pac-12 and and how you think teams are doing um among that uh, the 12 schools well I think there's a you know pretty good feel for what the rest of the country has been doing in terms of recruiting and I think you're seeing that the schools that typically recruit strong are still recruiting strong pandemic be damned you know they a lot of schools were able to kind of pivot with what their spring and summer plans were in order to get guys on campus, in order to get guys there for spring games, for junior days, for unofficial visits, even the spring official visits and and summer camps during the summer. And I think, you know, the majority of schools that you see with the strong classes, they had a backup plan in place or maybe not necessarily a backup plan in place. I don't think there was anything in the manual saying, hey, you've got to make sure that you know, you've got a backup plan in case there's a worldwide pandemic. But I think they were able to evolve and pivot quickly to kind of the, you know, the use of Zoom, the use of FaceTime, the use of virtual tours to kind of offset the inability to get guys on campus. And so I think you're seeing a lot of the schools that we typically expect to show up in the top 10, 15, 20 uh, recruiting classes each and every year, still being in that top 15, 20, 25. And I think it's, you know, so much about relationships. I think it's so much about building relationships with targets around the country and in your region. And I think, you know, Oregon's really the the one Pac-12 school that's done that the best. I think USC has uh, as well. USC circumstances are a little different, though. It's ironic that with all the questions and uncertainty about, you know, Clay Hilton's job, how well the recruiting class looks right now, considering what it was a year ago, but it's also kind of like, hey, they, as long as they don't have to necessarily put the season out there, there's still some hype and you know excitement around USC as well as a lot of new staff members that have made their recruiting really pick up. So you know you have two Pac-12 schools in the top ten, um, and, you know, and then you have one in Arizona State that's in the top twenty. We're not used to seeing, and then you got Cal in the top twenty-five. So there's been some schools that have really just ramped up 
kind of those relationships that they built over the last couple of years to get themselves into positions that maybe they haven't normally been. Washington is a school you didn't mention in the top 25. They're at 26th right now. If they were to get Emeka Buka and JT Tuimalau, which are at this point, um, and like we said, we'll talk about them here in a few minutes, but um, it, it's kind of a long shot to get those guys. They've got some, they've got some long odds right now and still some time, but um, you know, talk to me about where Washington stands and tell me, give me besides Sam Hewitt. I, I think everybody knows you like Sam Hewitt quite a bit, but the guys that are committed to the university of Washington, they have 15, uh, commits right now. Give me two or three guys besides Sam Hewitt that you like quite a bit. I've been a huge Owen Prentice fan since, you know, his freshman year and he was starting at O'Day on their state championship team. You know, I put four stars on him and I don't even think he had an offer at the time. And I remember a, a newspaper writer out West, you know, questioned, Oh, well, how do you have four stars on him? He only has an offer from Oregon state at the time. You know, what, what's the big deal? I'm like, well, for one thing, he's a guard guards typically aren't sexy this early in their career, but I said, go watch his film and you can see why he's rated high and why I'm so high on him. It's because I thought the kid was a phenomenal run blocker and a very, very good pass blocker, but just a good all around football player. He's been the number one, lineman in the Pacific Northwest really since the inaugural ranking for the 2021 class. So I'm a big fan of Owen. I think he's going to play somewhere along the interior, most likely stays as a guard uh, with the center coming in this last year in Miles Morale. But I think that Owen is a a guy that is a three-year starter type guy that is an impact player. Uh, The other guy that I'm I'm a big fan of, and and, this has been more just kind of watching him uh, uh, over the last couple of years. He's not as highly rated. And, you know, I, I think his rating is perfectly accurate. In fact, I don't ever think anybody in this class is underrated or overrated since I'm a part of the rankings process. I think they're all properly rated. Uh, but a guy that I, I do like is Vincent Nunley. You know, I think that, you know, Vincent Nunley was kind of in a weird transition this spring where he moved from Ensenal High School in Alameda out to Freedom High School in Oakley. So you lose, you kind of get lost in translation when you make a transfer, but then you also throw in the fact that coaches can't get on the road. They can't get down to see him uh, at either his old school or his new school. And so he was a little bit out of sight, out of mind, but I love the offer from Washington. I like, you know, Utah offered him shortly afterwards. You know, he's probably uh, a guy that I think his best football is still ahead of him. Positional Positional versatility, can play corner, can play safety, Probably best suited to play safety long term, uh, but a guy that I really think with, with some development could be a, a really good impact defensive back for Washington. Talk to me about uh, Maurice Himes and Zakari Spears. Two guy, one guy committed. He was the second commit in the recruiting class, Zakari Spears. And Maurice Himes is a guy who's never even set foot on a varsity football field. He had to play junior varsity last year because he enrolled relatively late. He's a transfer in from Germany came over to play some football and possibly earn a scholarship to a school. He did that, uh, but he's never seen the field as a varsity football player. Raw. There's the best way to put hit with Maurice is raw. He's a guy that, sorry, I had to drink my fresh new coffee because it was spilling everywhere. Um, he's, he's a guy <laughs> that I, I think is, you know, an intriguing player because you just don't get six foot five, six foot six, 245 pound defensive ends that often. And guys that really are raw at the position but show plus athleticism, show the ability to be potential impact guys, he just is going to take some time to develop. He's got a huge ceiling. Like his ceiling is probably the highest of anybody in this class just because it's so it's such a new sport to him. You know, I saw him down in February at the Under Armour camp in Southern California, and he would blow by an offensive lineman looking like he's about to run the drill, uh, roll through the drill, and then he'd run right back to the offensive tackle. It was almost like he felt, oh, I got past him, but he still didn't block me, so I need to go get blocked, and he'd lose the rep. And, you know, he shows that athleticism and quickness off the ball, but then there's a lot of, well, what do I do next? And, you know, I think the, the one concern is that all he's done is against JV – Good point. I mean, when you watch his film, it's good, but you would expect a guy that big to just completely dominate JV, let alone you expect a guy headed to the Pac-12 to dominate varsity film, and it's not quite there yet. But I think that is largely attributed to he's still learning the game of football. You know, I think it's a guy that he's a blank canvas. I mean, when you think about how many kids are playing football – 
from the age of third grade on, and they already have their kind of their bad habits in place. This is a guy that really doesn't have any bad habits yet because he's only been playing the game for so so briefly. He hasn't really learned any of the bad habits. So this is a guy that I think Pete Kwiatkowski, Kaika Malloy will love to have on campus because they can really develop him in his most formative years as a pass rusher. Zakari Spears is another guy I'm a big fan of. I love kids that come from Loyola High School. I've always thought you know, Loyola is one of the best programs in Southern California. It's been overshadowed in, in recent years by the Boscos, the modern days, the Servites, and even in its own league, the, you know, the, the Gardena Serras, the Crespies. But Loyola's got a long, proud history. And I think Zakari Spears, just, you know, his biggest issue was he was a little bit overshadowed by his fellow corner at Loyola, Sierra Wright. Uh, but Zakari's got a little bit more, you know, physical upside than Sierra. Sierra, a little quicker, and Sierra's a, obviously a more coveted recruit. But I think Zakari's got a, a very high ceiling as well. And a guy that didn't see any reason to go through the extended recruiting process, committed early, and really hasn't waned in. He's very active on Twitter, and his dad, Bobby, uh, is a friend of mine, very active on Twitter in, in recruiting guys to, to Washington as well. So another player, I think his best football is going to be played ahead of him. Uh, one of the reasons Sierra Wright's rated higher is also because of his acting career, correct? Uh, he's rated high because he's a good football player, but <laughs> the acting career definitely adds to his Q rating. Maybe that's what you're talking about in his Q rating, yeah, his, not yeah. his point four seven rating. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Brandon wanted to let. Why don't we just get into it? The elephant or elephants <laughs> in the room: Emeka Egbuka, JT Tuimalau, Washington. You've you you've been up front. I've been up front with people. Washington isn't not in the lead and really hasn't been in the lead for either one of those guys through this whole recruiting process. Um, and they're still in the mix. Um, and, and, and they've, they still have a chance to get them, but Brandon, let's talk about why, what, what schools you see them favoring at this point and what Washington needs to do. And specifically maybe the coaching staff needs to do in order to possibly get those guys, one one or both of them, to commit to the University of Washington? Well, I, I think the one thing that both players always have with Washington is obviously the proximity to home. But that has been kind of the overarching thing, that just because they have the proximity to home, that doesn't mean that they're locks whatsoever to stay close to home. And, and I felt, you know, with, with neither of them, at any point have I felt that because Washington's the closest to the home, they're the favorite. I did think maybe early on when Emeka got the Washington offer and that was an offer he had coveted really before he had blown up as a recruit, I put in an early crystal ball for Washington. I remember it was not, not long after, in fact, it might have been that night he got the offer in the fall of 2018. I'd gone to his game earlier in the year. He was wearing Washington gloves. Jimmy Lake, the then defensive coordinator, came to the game, watched him return a couple punts for touchdowns. And at that point, I thought Washington was going to be, you know, a stone cold lock for him. Three months later, he goes to the All American Combine in San Antonio, clocks a four four two. By the time the week and a half are done, Notre Dame, Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, all the uh, Alabamas, all the the who's who's of national programs west of the of the Pac twelve started getting involved. And at that point, you could see a mecca going from being, hey, this is going to be a really good local recruit to an elite national recruit. Then he has the junior season that he has. He gets out on the road. He visits Ohio State. He visits Clemson. He visits Alabama. He visits LSU. And right then, I started thinking Washington's got a problem on their hands, not with, you know, a Mecca as a person. It was more they're going to have to really battle against some of the elite programs nationally that are cranking out wide receivers, that are putting up big points and big numbers offensively, and we're really presenting compelling alternatives to the hometown school for a Mecca. And the one thing with Washington though, that's always helped is he's got a fantastic relationship with Junior Adams. Junior Adams was his own coach's uh, Greg Hurd, who was the former offensive coordinator at Stillicum and receivers coach at Stillicum. Now he's the head coach at Auburn Riverside, but he was a Mecca's receivers coach at Stillicum. And Mecca, or Greg Hurd played for Junior Adams at Eastern Washington. So there's always been that relationship that's kept the Huskies in it. That said, when you looked at his final four, the Clemson, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Washington, from just an offensive standpoint, the other three have been known for putting up fireworks and offensive, you know, just being offensive juggernauts, and especially at the receiver position with their development, with the players in the NFL. It, it certainly 
was more compelling uh, cases for those other three schools than, say, it was for Washington. Washington has maintained uh, a part of his recruitment all along, so I actually think they have a better chance at a Mecca, but they're working against Ohio State. They're working against Oklahoma, and you can't not look at what Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley have done either as the offensive coordinator at those school or when, since they've taken over as head coach. Both have been in the playoffs uh, as head coaches. Both have been in the playoffs their first year as head coaches. Both had been in the playoffs as offensive coordinators. And you look at you know what Oklahoma, or Oklahoma and Ohio State have done just in terms of recruiting and development at those positions. And it's certainly something that's been working to their attention. But I think – one of the things with, with the Mecca has been there, there's been a, a real push by the head coaches at those schools. Not to say that Jimmy Lake's not involved, but I think that it's one of those cases where with Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day and Oklahoma and Ohio State recruiting at the low they are, those head coaches take very, very early involvement. And those head coaches are also key in the play calling. So they have a lot in their resume to sell, whereas – Mecca has said numerous times he wanted to see what John Donovan was going to actually do this season. He wanted to see what he was going to do in the spring. He said he likes him. He's had good conversations with him and is excited to see what he's going to do, but he just hasn't had the chance to see it. You know, on the flip side with JT, I, I think one of the big things working against Washington uh, has been, you know, the Alabama and Ohio State recent track record of pass rushers that have been that have gone to those schools and been highly drafted players at Ohio State, at Alabama. And Alabama is a school that early on, I would have said, hey, if there's a school that's going to be really involved in this recruitment, it's going to be Alabama. People may remember he had a viral video from a camp at Alabama right after his freshman year where he beat yeah. a top 50 player, just pushed the kid back with his left arm. And in the video, you can see Tosh Dupoy covering his face to try to hide his laughter and his giddiness at what JT did. That afternoon, he gets an offer from Alabama. Well, a few months later, Tosh goes to the NFL. So you think Alabama's out, but Alabama has a guy who has some familiarity with Washington named Steve Sarkeesian. And you take him and you take Pete Golding and Jeff Banks, who's a former Washington State punter who's been up in the Northwest as well. And those three, plus Nick Saban, plus the track record of Alabama pass rushers, the and the name, of, and the name. And the name, yeah, that doesn't hurt either. Plus, they've had a really big impact in the Polynesian community the last few years, even prior to Tua Tonga-Vailoa. So, you know, there it's not like he's going into no man's land. So Alabama's making a really big push here. I still think Ohio State's in the lead. Uh, but again, it's Ryan Day and Nick Saban are taking as much of a time in that recruiting as anything. And I think that means a big deal to these kids. It's not just Jimmy Lake. You know, again, Jimmy Lake's not sitting idly by – I just think that, you know, there's a reason Nick Saban and Ryan Day, especially Nick Saban, closes the way Alabama closes. Because once he gets on the phone and, you know, tries to sell you on, come play a pass, you know, be a pass rusher at Alabama, that's hard to turn down. So one question I have, Brandon, and when these when these coaches get on the on the phone with them, are are Ryan and Ryan Day and Lincoln Riley and maybe not Nick Saban, but his name might carry a little more weight than those guys just because he's done it for longer and he's won several national championships, whereas neither of those guys have. But are they getting on the phone? Maybe Mario Cristobal is another example. Are they getting on the, I say getting on the phone, are they getting on Zoom, however they're contacting these kids on a regular basis? And is that a situation where maybe Jimmy Lake, because of the way Chris Peterson did things, and Jimmy Lake, that's Jimmy Lake's biggest example of a head coach and recruiting and everything like that. Maybe Chris Peterson didn't get on the phone with guys every every week, but maybe that might be something that Jimmy Lake needs to do a little bit more of is get on Zoom with these guys, partly because he's an unproven head coach at this point. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything wrong with you know a coach still trying to find his way and, and kind of see what's my involvement going to be in this recruitment where, you know, you go from being a position coach, even a coordinator, even when you're a coordinator, you're still not necessarily talking to the guys to the extreme that the head coach needs to talk to every guy in that class. But when you're a position coach, it's like, okay, I got my five DBs or I got my five linebackers. Those are the ones that I need to target. And now as a head coach, you've got to take a much more active involvement. I remember a few years ago, there was an old PAC 12 uh, assistant coach that I knew and, and his program had been in the top three uh, for three or four different guys, and they were going against Alabama and Ohio State for each of them. And I remember him saying to me that, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm impressed that I'm getting this far, 
But at the end of the day, if my head coach isn't getting on the phone as much and this kid's getting on the phone and talking to Urban Meyer and Nick Saban, how am I going to win that recruiting battle? So, you know, again, it's not just so much don't mistake activity for achievement. Just by getting on the phone isn't going to close the deal, but you got to get on the phone and you got to maintain, you know, that much of a presence in that recruitment as a head coach, because there's certain schools that when the head coach gets involved, it's game over. That guy closes better than anybody, and Saban's one of them. Dabble Swinney's another. Mario Cristobal is starting to become that guy. Pete Carroll was phenomenal at that. And the other thing about Pete Carroll that was, you know, really kind of set the tone for Pac-12 recruiting over the last 15, 20 years is how much Pete Carroll was involved in the recruiting process early on. And that's something that I think Washington really benefited from. And, and again, I, I, you know, I think in fairness to Jimmy Lake, losing the whole spring, losing the summer, losing the time in early March until the evaluation period to get guys on campus as a new coach. You could see when they had all those recruits on campus in January, what direction they wanted to go and how they wanted to be involved. But, you know, one of the things that really helped Washington and get so many early commitments in, in years past was guys would come up, they would have their unofficial visit, they would meet with Chris Peterson, and they would be wowed and blown away with what Chris Peterson was saying to them eight, nine, 10 months before they were ready to commit. And that's where, again, relationships are key. And that's why I said earlier, you look at some of the schools that are high up in the recruiting rankings in the Pac-12, those are coaches that have been at those schools for a few years now. So they've been able to build those relationships to offset losing that personal touch that they were had taken away from them this spring. So I think that, you know, the more Jimmy Lake gets out in front of it, and I think, you know, you'll see kind of a different, approach in 22 and, and probably 23 uh but you really got to be a everyday presence in these kids recruitment now as a head coach especially for those top end kids because if you're not talking to them some other head coach is all right we're going to get a break right now when we come back we'll talk a little bit about 2022 and 2023 washington has two commitments already for 2022 we'll talk about those guys and more when we return here on Dogman radio I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And welcome back. We're still talking to Brandon Huffman from 247 Sports. Uh, I'm Scott Eklund here, and you're listening to Dogman Radio, and we're talking a lot of recruiting. We've already gone through the 2021 class. Now let's look ahead to 2022. Washington has two commitments already, one a local kid, and one is a highly thought of wide receiver prospect from the Western region. So first let's talk about Chance Bogan uh, committed to the university of Washington. His father, Curtis Bogan was a former Husky football player. And um, when he got his offer from the university of Washington, pretty much everybody thought that it was only a matter of time that he became a Husky. Yeah. And I think he, you know, comes from a really good program that has had quite a few players either show interest or go to, to Washington over the last few years, um, played on the FSP seven on 17 this off season. I, you know, so there was more than just, Oh, I want to go to UW to play. It was already kind of immersing himself with familiarity with some of the other Washington commits, some of the other Washington recruits and building that early rapport with a player like Sam Hewitt. I think that that's certainly helped that, you know, there's there's ample seven on seventeen to play in in Nevada and in the Vegas area, uh, but he chose to play for FSP, and I think that was kind of early on. Hey, you know, I want to go start running with my quarterback and really get familiar with him and, and the way he throws the ball, and you know, just developing that chemistry. So I, I think that was a good pickup. You know, Nevada is becoming you know fast becoming a state that even though it's not in the Pac-12 footprint per se. It doesn't have a, a university in the state that's part of the Pac-10 or Pac-12. I would say Nevada is more a part of the Pac-12 footprint than maybe this is a controversial hot take, but you almost feel Nevada is far more of the Pac-12 footprint than, say, Colorado is. With Colorado being a Big 12 uh, program for so long and a lot of those players from Colorado seemingly heading out of state and a lot more going east and it feels like they're coming west – 
Nevada has had a strong presence in the Pac-12 historically. And, you know, that's why there's discussions that if the Pac-12 ever decides to leave San Francisco for the Pac-12 offices, they go into Vegas. You've got the Pac-12 championship game there. You've got the Pac-12 basketball tournament. So I think, you know, Washington maintaining a presence in Nevada is good long-term and short-term because that's a state that more and more people are leaving Southern California moving out to Nevada. And you're starting to see outside of Bishop Gorman, more and more kids being recruited from that state. Uh, and well, and you talk about Jeremy Bernard uh, from, from uh, he's not from Las Vegas per se, he's from Henderson, which is what, about 15 minutes away from Las Vegas? Which is and basically Bellevue to, to Seattle. Seattle, yeah, basically. So he's out of Liberty High School. Washington already has a young man, an offensive lineman uh, from that school on campus already. He's a redshirt freshman. Um uh, Fautan, Troy, uh, Fautanu, and um, and you know Jeremy Bernard is a six two hundred ninety five pounder. Looks honestly a lot like uh, a, you know the big physical receivers. Even though he's only six, I say only, but he's only six two. You know, you think of the big physical receivers as six four two hundred twenty five pounds. He plays bigger than his six two hundred ninety five pounds, in my opinion. Yeah, you know he's a big guy and. I think he's a guy that, you know, maybe will have to carry the dreaded possession label, dreaded position receiver label because of his size. Uh, he's a little bit faster, though, than I, I think. The, the one thing that I'd love to see him really develop is just more consistency in his pass catching. I think he had about four drops in key moments in the Vegas 7-on-7 seven seven tournament. And a lot of that could be chalked up to that was his first time really throwing with Sam Keyword. But, you know, you look at his size, you look at his competitiveness, you look at his physical build. You know, he's got a chance to, to really be a big physical receiver. And, you know, as he gets faster and really has developed some, you know, top end overall speed, has a chance to really flourish and, and be a big time pass catcher in the Pac-12. So, uh, and Chance Bogan, we have him listed at 6'4", 2'12". Um, he's got the frame to get to about 235, 240 pretty easily, right? Yeah, and I think Chance's big thing is is putting on the weight. You know, he it looks like he's slimmed up. It's funny, he told me he's 212, but he looks slimmer than he ever is, and, and in a good way. It wasn't like he was he was chunky, it wasn't like he had bad weight. It's just he's really starting to become much more defined physically, a little looking more cut. And as he continues to put on that weight, he'll probably play his junior year at about 215. And then you got a chance to see him at maybe 225, 230-ish as a senior. But if he stays in that 215 weight, it's not unrealistic to think he may just be strictly a wide receiver. I mean, he's going to be more yeah. that flex Y guy. Uh, you know, and the big thing with Chance is he's looked awesome in the offseason, the 7-on-7 seven seven circuit, in camps. I want to see that translate over. His, his sophomore film was good, not great, didn't have a lot of touches at Wilson. Now he's at Lincoln High School, Gabari Johnson at quarterback with a much more wide-open offense. And I think, you know, if he could put together what he's done this offseason into pads come the spring, then I think, you know, Chance has a chance to not just become a four-star, but to be a top two four seven guy. I think he's going to earn us a uh, nickname too, 7-11, because he's always open, right? Because uh, he, I don't think at that COVID sevens um, thing that you and I went to that one day, and then you, you've been at a couple more of them, uh, his, I don't think his mouth stopped. And he wasn't talking smack to people. He wasn't talking smack to people or, you know, talking about their mother or sister or anything like that. But he... He just, I, I don't think he ever stopped. And that was, I was like, man, that guy is, he's going to be a broadcaster someday because he never stopped talking. And, uh, but really impressed, really nice kid too. And, yeah, and very talented. Very much so. And, and, you know, and he has fun. And that's what I like to see. I mean, mm -hmm. the, people forget these kids are, are missing out on a lot of things with not being able to play football. And I think that's one of the real, you know, just, sad stories about this whole outbreak and really the last few months is that a lot of kids are missing something that they really love and they're good at. And, you know, the one thing about the COVID sevens is these guys are having an opportunity to have fun playing with their high schoolers instead of playing on Friday nights, which they should be doing right now they're playing. And so his thing is never in the context of, you know, being a trash talker. It's more in I'm out here having fun playing the game I love. And you want to see that because there are plenty of guys who you always wonder like, do you even like playing this game that you're playing? Uh, we've talked, uh, and Greg Biggins and Blair Angulo, if you guys haven't caught the 
what is the name of that podcast? Is it just a recruiting podcast or what? what yeah, it? the twenty four seven National Recruiting Podcast. Yeah, and the and Greg Biggins and and Blair Angulo. If you haven't listened to the latest uh, um, episode of that, you guys really should go and check it out. We've got we've had it on our front page. It's also on our message boards, but. They talked about the the small classes, and part of that's going to be because they've got to get back down to eighty five, even though they're extending the extending the uh, eligibility of players um, for one more season, and and they're allowing teams to bring in. Washington's only going to be expected to take about fifteen in the twenty twenty two class, and Greg said that he thinks the twenty twenty two classes are going to be a lot smaller for pretty much everybody because of the way that the NCAA has chosen to do some things here. And I guess one of the things that uh, I was wondering is, do you see that being the case? You know, not to put you in direct conflict with Greg if you disagree, but but do you agree with that? And if so, schools like Boise State, San Diego State, they're going to benefit quite a bit, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, it's funny. I've been talking to – I talked to one Pac-12 coach earlier this week, and he was saying that – you know, 2023 might be the next normal roster year that we experience in college football. And there's so many, and part of it is because the NCAA, I know this is going to shock many, but the NCAA has done such a poor job of communicating and clarifying no. dead periods and when signing days are going to be. And aside from saying, oh, well, yeah, nobody's roster spot is going to be, or their eligibility is going to be affected if you opt in, it's still a matter of, well, who's going to pay for it? How are we going to manage these rosters? How are we? How many is you know too many? Are we going to have eighty-five? Are we going to have one hundred and fifteen? We going to have one hundred and five? Are we going to have sixty-five? I mean, and so then you talk to the FCS and um, you know Division two schools, and they're in even more flux because they don't know they can't afford it. You know, and Alabama can afford to have one hundred twenty-five guys on scholarship. Can a Wyoming? Can a Utah State? You know, can, can Oregon? Can Oregon State or Washington yeah, State? Right. Can, can schools that don't have these endless streams of money afford to have all these guys on the roster? So there's so much creativity that's going to have to get done. But at the end of the day, they still got to have to, you know, I think Wisconsin was one of the first schools. If you remember back in the spring when the NCAA said anybody who lost their spring uh, because of the pandemic shutting down all the spring sports in NCAA, Barry Alvarez is one of the first athletic directors to say, listen, we, we admire what the NCAA is doing, but Wisconsin's not going to honor that because they have to look at it from a fiscal standpoint. We can't afford to just keep all these people on scholarship for an extra year just because they missed their season. It's time for you guys to go and get a job in the real world. Well, you know, in football, you kind of know who are the guys that are going to be playing football at the NCAA level or at the NFL level? Who are the guys that maybe football in college is their, their last hurrah? You know, you've got to balance that. Do we keep him on scholarship knowing he's not going to the NFL? Do we not keep him on scholarship even though we need a depth? So it, it's just the, the whole roster management thing is going to be an absolute fascinating peer in to see what colleges are doing, how they're going to be able to do it, how they're going to be able to afford it. But I think a lot of this will be answered if the NCA would ever give the college coaches the insight into knowing an exact hard number that they have to work with because then I think that allows coaches to move forward and, and really recruit and manage their roster that way. All right, Brandon, let's move on real quick to, well, the 2022 class is pretty loaded in the state of Washington with offensive linemen, which uh, we've, we've talked about quite a bit. There's five that have offers from the university of Washington. Josh Carnley from Rainier beach is widely considered the number one player in the state. Correct. Not only is he widely considered, he is the number one player. Yes, in the exactly. And <laughs> he is the number one player, all right? And uh, then we have Malik Agbo from uh, Todd Beamer over in Federal Way. We have Dave Ayuli from Puyallup. We have uh, uh, Vega Ijuane from Graham Kapowson, who just received an offer from USC. And Mark Nabu. Is it Nabu? Yeah, Mark Nabu. Mark- Mark Nabu from O'Day in uh, Seattle. Those are all five with offers from the University of Washington and multiple offers from Power Five schools. Um, just talk about it real quick. Uh, not going to get predictions from you, but of all the ones, all, of all five of those, if if Washington fans are going to look at all of them and be worried, quote unquote, worried about one of them, which one should they worry about wanting to leave the state? 
I would say Malik Agbo is going to be the one that I think has the best chance of leading the state when it's all said and done. I, I would say in terms of guys more likely to stay home and guys more likely to leave, I would probably rank it. Mark Nimbo is most likely to stay. I would say Agbo is the most likely to leave. I would put Connerly probably number four, not because I think he really wants to the state, but I think you know, like we're seeing with JT and Emeka, when you become that elite national recruit, it opens you're your eyes. Yeah, yeah, you're going to be attracted to those schools. And when you got Ed Orgeron calling you on the phone and, you know, you got a Nick Saban, you know, or not, you're calling Ed Orgeron or you're calling a Nick Saban. I mean, it makes a difference. And there, again, that's nothing against Scott Huff. It's nothing against Jimmy Lake. But, you know, these kids know who some of those coaches that they see on their televisions on Saturdays and during the week. So I would say, you know, in ranking them most likely to stay, I would probably go, uh, I would go Nabu, Vega, Yuli, Connerly, Agbo, and Matt Orley, order in terms of most likely to stay to most likely to leave. Yeah, and and uh, and you and I have talked about Vega Ijuane. Washington was the first to offer him last year after after he dominated, you know, had a really dominant performance in the in the uh, PLU 11 on 11 full contact camp. It was really his first camp that he ever played uh, with his team. And uh, he had a really good, good, uh, you know, summer and then um, looked okay uh, as a, as a uh, sophomore last year. And one of the things I like about him is his ability to move at six, four, you think he's probably a better fit inside, correct? I do, yeah. Okay. I, I think he could play some right tackle, but I think in, inside is probably – because of how nimble his feet are, I think he could move inside as well. And and I just uh, posted a story on him on Thursday morning, so go and check that out if you guys haven't already. Washington is in a very good spot with him. Uh, let's move on. And, to and 20- I just posted one oh. too where I did a little bit more yeah. of an inside look at his recruitment. And yep. again, I think you know to follow up with you said, yeah, there's an SC offer in there that, that was attractive, but – He's a guy I don't necessarily see leaving the state. Um, you know, Washington State, believe it or not, is going to be a little bit more involved with guys like Vega and Dave Ayuli than, than maybe, you know, people would have probably expected in years past. Uh, but I, I do think the Huskies are in a good spot for Vega. And, you know, what, one thing I will say about this 2022 offensive line class is, you know, we always kind of set the bar as that 2022 offensive line class being the best the state's ever produced. And it's not only been productive when they were in high school, but it featured a future Outland Trophy winner. It featured a future first-round draft pick. But this 2022 class, I mean, those are just the big five. There's going to be some other guys that are already starting to emerge, like a Keith Olsen down in Napa Vine, a Luca Vincic up at Bothell. Um, uh, what's my, the, my guy up at? I think it's Connor Owens up at Monroe. I mean, this is one of those, those classes where there's some really, really good kind of second-tier offensive lineman in the state that Scott Huff might not even have to worry about recruiting because he's doing so well with the four or five guys he's already offered. Yeah, and and the thing is that they've only offered five offensive linemen or six offensive linemen in the class, and the, the only out-of-stater is Ernest, Gre- Ernest Green from uh, St. John Bosco, who's a big-time stud, and mm-hmm. um, they probably aren't getting him anyway. So he's no what he's no Josh Connerly. Yeah. He's not Josh Connerly, but I mean, he's a stud too though. So oh, yeah. yeah. And he's got that length that you look for on the outside. So, um, but I mean, he's probably, he's a national recruit and it, it, he's going to be a tough, tough pull for Washington. But like you said, they might not have to leave the, the biggest question for Washington. I don't think is keeping all five home. I think they've got a good chance to do that. The problem is, with only probably 15 in the class, they're not a third of their class is not going to be offensive linemen. Are they going to be able to find enough spots to carry all those guys? So that's going to be the real interesting part. All right, let's move on to 2023 real quick. I don't want to talk about it too deeply. These are guys who have barely even played varsity football at this point. The number one guy in the state is, by all accounts, Jaden Wayne, um, 6'5", 225 pounds, athletic can get after the quarterback but really was only a spot player last year so it'll be real interesting to see how much playing time he gets this what is it when do they start in january february whenever they start what his sophomore season looks like he he's a guy that i think is just you know full of upside i mean you you look at him it it was funny i I saw him at a seven on seven 
practice recently and I was talking to one of the coaches at FSP and they said, you know, when Jaden first got here, he thought he was a quarterback. And I'm like, I remember when his brother Deshaun, who's now plays at Georgetown, texted me when Jaden was in seventh grade. He said, oh, this is my brother. He's six five. He's a quarterback. And I said, dude, your brother's a defensive end. Like he's still having a hard time getting away from he's an offensive guy. He's a quarterback. He's a receiver. He's a tight end to eventually become a defensive end. But He's one of those players that with his athleticism, with his size, with his skill set, with his quickness, the second that he really puts in his mind he's a pass rusher, that kid's got a chance to be special. Maybe not JT just yet. Maybe not Savelle just yet. I don't think he's anywhere near where those two guys were as freshmen, uh, but kind of in that same vein in terms of being that kind of caliber recruit nationally. Uh, other guy that's in the initial 2023-247 besides Jaden Wayne. By the way, he's from Lincoln High School. He's um, uh, and and he's been really. Uh, Jaden Wayne is really um, coming out of that that program down there, just continuing the top players coming out of that program. But the other guy is a guy who comes from a also from the South Sound, but he's not from a program that produces a lot of big time talent, and that's. Um, Josiah Wagner from Spanaway Lake. Yeah, you know, interestingly enough, Spanaway Lake has three DBs right now with uh, FBS offers and, and a couple, you know, that like in Josiah Wagner, who had his first offer come from Oregon back in February, a guy that I really think is going to blossom into one of the top pass defenders in the, the state. Um, you know, you got Kiki McQueen, who's a 2022 kid over at Spanaway Lake, who's got offers. You got the, um, uh, Deontay Hayes, who's got uh, offers, and he's a 2021 there. So you have three DBs at Spanaway Lake. When we think Spanaway, we think Bethel. And it, it's kind of interesting because Wagner was kind of one of those. It's like, hey, there's some good football being played out of the traditional outside of the traditional powers. Because if you look at, you know, kind of the next tier of guys that just missed being that top 100, Caleb Presley, cornerback, got offered by USC this week out of Eastside Catholic. Jonathan Landry out of Evergreen in Vancouver, which is, you know, had some quite a few players over the years get recruited and get offered. Uh, so Spanaway Lake's kind of one of those where Josiah Wagner might be doing his part to really put them on the map. But he's one of three DBs and the youngest of three DBs with offers. So, you know, there might be some reason for coaches to start paying attention to Spanaway Lake if the NCAA ever lets you guys go on the road. Yeah, and let's get back over to Lincoln. I probably should have mentioned him when we talked about Jaden Wayne, but uh, Jabari Johnson is a quarterback out of there. You like him a lot. Um, you know, he's big. He's He's got that gregarious personality, but he's not just all up in your face all the yeah. time. He's just he's that kind of, hey, I'm a leader. I know I'm I know I'm a leader and I don't have to tell everybody I'm a leader because I'm just going to do it. And the most impressive thing is he hasn't even been the starter yet. No, nope. he already carries that personality as, you know, this is my team. Get on my back. Let's do it. He's been fantastic at every event I've seen him at over the last few months. He was the Northwest nine MVP for all the underclassmen there. Probably was the number two, no worse than the number three overall performer. The top three were Cole Welliver, Sam Keward, and Jabari. And I, I think that this kid, his ceiling is so high. And he just kind of has that it factor. And he was one of those players that, you know, I put on, I did a story last year before the high school football season started saying the two for incoming freshmen to really get to know were him and Jaden Wayne. And I knew Jaden Wayne would have more of a chance to play because Caden Filer was going to be the three-year starter at Lincoln. But Masaki Matsumoto did some packages to get the ball into Jabari's hands, would use him as a receiver, would line him up as kind of a wildcat quarterback, uh, and let him run. And you can just see the playmaking ability he has. So he's going to be a fun one to watch. I think he's got five offers now, four from the Pac-12, and he still hasn't started a varsity game at quarterback. Just a couple more names, then we'll move on to our last uh, subject that I wanted to talk about. Caleb Presley is a... Pretty ta pretty talented uh, corner prospect out of Eastside Catholic, six foot uh, six foot one seventy. Um, we've seen him at the COVID sevens. He was playing with a uh, with a uh, with another team because I think it was Rainier Beach, right? That he was playing yep. with. Yeah, yep. he was playing with Rainier Beach. Um, he he's a pretty good one. You got the two kids up at Ferndale, Isaiah Carlson and Landon Hatchett. That's Garen Hatchett's younger brother. Both of those guys, I think, I, I don't know if they're big time, but they're they're definitely a cusp of power power five guys, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, and um, am I forgetting anybody? I'm, those are just the ones off of the top of my head. Yeah, those, those are the primary ones that are names right now that, you know, people should kind of 
get familiar with. They've all already received at least one offer, with the exception of Landon Hatchett, who I think will. The all the rest, Isaiah Carlson, you know, Jonathan Landry down there in Vancouver, Caleb Presley, and then the three that are in the top 100, all have already landed at least one offer. And I think again, it shows you the increase in talent in the state of Washington, but the early respect there that the state now has is so many players are getting offers this early in their career. All right, last subject, and we'll let you go, Brandon, because I know you're busy. Uh, I want to find out your your the best two or three recruits that you ever that that you're proud of the way and it doesn't have to be Washington kids I'm just talking kids that you rated um that you had really high and they proved you right and I if I remember correctly one of them was a big time USC wide receiver that I'll let you talk about and then I want you to talk about guys that you're like oh geez why did I do that um (laughs) Let's start with the bad news first. Okay, Darryl all right, Scott. let's start with the bad Darryl news. Daryl Scott will be an albatross that will forever live trapped around my neck. I mean, he was a no-brainer at a time when you just didn't see running backs like that. St. Bonaventure, right? St. Bonaventure, that was his problem. You know, I was a Ventura High School alum myself. We all know the real tough <laughs> football players play at Ventura High, and then the soft entitled guys go to St. Bonaventure. No, I'm just kidding. Only a few of the guys become soft and entitled. And Daryl Scott was one of them because when he got to Colorado, he thought he was going to be the guy. He thought he didn't really have to work hard, and they brought in Demetrius Summer in that same class who ended up being the starter for a few years at Colorado. And then the next thing you know, Daryl Scott's at South Florida, and before you know it, he's – stupidly leaving for the NFL, but he was the number one running back in the country by every everyone. And the thing that makes it the worst is that my number two player out West that year was a offensive lineman that people might be familiar with because he's one of the highest paid linemen and a perennial pro bowler named Tyrone Smith. So I wish I could have that one back. Uh, but in terms of the players that like I was super high on early that, you know, I think really proved to be as good as they were. And then Another one that I kind of took a gamble on and decided, hey, I'm going high on this kid, even though nobody else is saying so. Uh, the, the one was Robert Woods. I, I, I saw him when he was a yep. freshman. If you're an old-school Washington Husky fan, you'll remember Anthony Boyles, played at Sarah High School, was in the 2007 class. That 2007 class at Sarah had Anthony Boyles. It had Dejon Harris, who went to USC, and Apai Tuyalamaka, who went to Arizona. And I remember going to one of those practices with Randy Taylor, who was uh, formerly with Scout many, many years ago. And we're at this practice early in the fall, and Scott Altenberg, the longtime head coach at Sarah, points at this skinny freshman who was wearing one of those jerseys that looked like he was, you know, a hand-me-down from like nine generations. It was too big. And he puts it and he says, that's going to be one of the best football players to ever come out of the state of California. And over the next four years, Robert Woods was just an absolute star at Sarah. He was the number one receiver in the country. Uh, could have probably been the number one safety in the country if you wanted to play that. That was one of those years where him and Keenan Allen were really the top two receivers slash DBs. And we rated Keenan Allen as a safety who ended up being a Pro Bowl receiver himself. But that's how close those two were. Robert Woods ended up being an All-American at USC and just signed a long-term contract with the Rams. And, I mean, if you look at L.A., I would say he's a better version of Jermaine Curse. And what I mean by that is that Jermaine Curse is one of those guys who started as a high school player in Seattle, started as a college player in Seattle, and then started in the NFL in Seattle. Uh, and more importantly, Jermaine Curse was big in some Super Bowl uh, wins or Super Bowl seasons. I think Woods' career has been a little bit better from a high school, college, and NFL standpoint. But Jermaine Curse has that one thing that Robert Woods doesn't have, and that's a Super Bowl ring. So Woods got close. But just in terms of being a guy who really is immersed into the fabric of that community, uh, you know, Marcus Trufant might be another one, although he went to Washington State. Woods is about as L.A. as you get. And the guy that I fully expect to you know, end up in the front office of the Rams when, he's, when it's all said and done. Uh, just because he's an L.A. guy. But the other one, a little bit closer to home, was in in 2005, Jake Locker was the state champion quarterback at Ferndale High School. And in that state championship game, they beat Prosser High School. And, you know, Jake Locker and Ferndale, after what they did the year before, almost beating a really good Bellevue team, all the talk was about him. But by the time I left the Tacoma Dome on that night in December – all I could think of was that little lefty quarterback from Prosser High School. I'm thinking to myself, man, this kid gets into the right system in college. He's going to be really good. Fast forward a year later, Boise State hires this guy named Chris Peterson as their head coach. He takes a flyer on this little lefty from Prosser, and I rated him as a four-star. Only one in the entire industry to rate him as a four-star. And all he would do is go on to take Boise State to heights 
unseen. And I think they were within playing for the national championship two or three different times at Boise State. And he left as the winningest quarterback in college football history. So that's one that I'll, I, I can only ride that one a few more years before people are like, who is, who is Kellen Moore? But that's one that I always like to, to kind of carry as like, well, you know, you could take my Daryl Scott one, but I'll show you my Kellen Moore one. <laughs> All right. Brandon, thank you for giving us your time. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, give us uh, a, a little update real quick on your foundation and where people can go to find out more. Yeah, the foundation is kind of an interesting year with obviously the pandemic slowing things down. So instead of us having our fifth annual gala this Saturday, as we had planned to, uh, we pushed it back a year. We'll be doing it again next September, but there's still plenty of opportunity to, to get involved and to support our cause. Uh, you can find all of our social media channels at Avery Strong DIPG on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can go to our website, avstrongdipg.org. You can go to my own Twitter, at Brandon Huffman, and there's a link to uh, the, the foundation Twitter and the website there. Uh, but we continue to, uh, to to make waves, and you know we've awarded over, gosh, $3 million in research and grants with some of the other partner foundations that we're involved with uh, towards research for uh, this dreaded disease. So even though the pandemic has slowed our fundraising efforts and it's slowed kind of what we've been uh, able to do in years past, we still haven't stopped sharing her story and, you know, awarding grants and scholarships and, and funds to some of the leading researchers in the country. And even when DIPG is beaten and it will be beaten, even when it is, we're, you're going to continue on. Damn straight. That's right. All right. Brandon, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, for all you guys out in Husky Nation, uh, thanks for tuning in, and we'll have another episode for you in the very near future. Thanks, and go dogs. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app.